I still hate public speaking, to be honest. Every time before I go upstage, I always still have this jittery feeling. My heart beats, I don't know how many BPS per second. It goes crazy. Uh, it's not something that comes natural to me uh, until today. So it was a period of time when I started my company and then I, I took the whole certified e-commerce program. That is when I realized that I cannot escape this if this is what I want to do. If I wanted to be different, if I am serious of this path or so-called this career or this skill that I'm trying to build, this is something that I would just need to do despite me not liking it or despite me being not good at it. So whatever that you are seeing now, it's actually just a result of me forcing myself and tremendous amount of practice. In the early days, it was hell. I had to practice I, many, many times. You know, I wrote a script. I tried to memorize it. I practiced in front of mirror. I run through it over and over again just for that 15 minutes just to introduce myself and my company in a networking event. I needed to go through that. Hard work, like hard, H-A-R-D and H-E-A-R-T. Hard work, combination of these two things because I really need to force myself uh, to be honest, I could actually just say, no, I don't want to do any of these things. You know, I'm comfortable not doing any of this. But again, it's what I want to do. It's how I also put myself in a position that I'll need to do it. And therefore, I did it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode seven of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Linya. And today's guest is Jen Wong, a Forbes 30 under 30 Malaysian serial entrepreneur who did his first sale at the age of eight his first company at the age of 17 whilst in college, which attracted the attention and partnership of the likes of Seagate, Microsoft, Fujitsu, and Samsung, and founded seven other companies thereafter, leading to the formation of Open Minds, a data-driven market company based in KL, Singapore, Hong Kong, and at one point, Kazakhstan. Now, all that sounds very impressive, but if you're a long-time listener of this podcast, you know that I like to dig deep into the genesis of each of my guests, their childhood, and the pivotal moments that led them down the path they're now on. And when you hear Jan's story, where his teacher tells his parents at the age of 10 that he would never amount to anything, and how he overcame that, are the many moments in his life where, of his own volition, he spotted a need, a gap in the market, and immediately pivoted to fulfill that demand. I think when you hear the many stories he shares, the highs and the deep lows, you come to conclude as I have that Jen is a truly remarkable person whose grit, humility and generosity with time and resources is one we can all strive to emulate in some way. This was one of my favourite interviews and one that I hope you enjoy. Are you ready? Let's go! Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Hi. Thank you for having me. Really, really. Uh... I think this is going to be a very interesting interview. I think so too, because you have done so many, many things. You are, if we can put it, a true entrepreneur at heart. You've done 
at least eight companies in the past 15 years. And it seems as though that kind of spirit has started since you were a child. And I understand there was an incident when you were young, but there was a need for A4 paper and you just went around selling to your classmates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you kind of relate that story to us? Actually, there was two incidences when I was young, when I really look back at hindsight, right? And at both incidences, including my first official business, I didn't actually see it as starting a business. In fact, to me, it was just me wanting to do something fun, picking up something different and just doing it because I just enjoy the process. So for that particular incident, that still lingers fresh in my mind because I still don't understand why did I even do something like that. I think I just stand the two or stand the three at that point of time. It was the whole exam period and everybody was taking up rough paper to do maths. And I thought to myself, well, if everybody needs paper, why don't I just sell paper? You know, I'll just go get scrap paper somewhere. I sell a blank sheet for 10 cents. And I thought that, hey, since everybody draws the equal sign on the paper anyway for maths, although it's a draft paper, I will help them to write the equal sign on this blank paper and I sell it for 20 cents. You know, so 10 cents for blank, 20 cents for paper with the equal sign. And surprisingly, people bought it. I don't know why they would buy it. But people bought it. People bought the convenience. So I, I was actually quite happy. I, I didn't see that as a business. To me, it's just like, oh, okay, people are paying me to do things like that. On another incident, back then in primary school, there was always these people that comes and exhibits and gets you to buy storybooks, like a lot of them, right? They're trying to encourage reading and all of that thing. And I remember my parents didn't allow me to buy any of these books. They think it's too expensive. It's a waste of money. They, I should read other books, blah, blah, blah. A typical Chinese family, you know. So I thought that, hey, my friends are buying it. I'm not able to do it. I should start a library. And that's exactly what I did. So I went to all my friends that bought these books. I told them that, look, I'm going to start a library. All of you, after purchasing these books, you're going to leave them with me so that you can also get access to books other friends have bought, right? You bought one, but you didn't buy the other. So you actually have the chance to read all these books. But the condition is I am the library. You give all the books to me. And they did, right? So I, so I took home all these books. I read all of them at the same time. So I didn't charge money, but I managed to have gained free access to all the books just by handling them. And you know what? Until today, I still have all these books in my parents' place until today. It was never returned. So I hope some of my friends, if somehow they stumble upon this interview, you know, you can still collect them back from me. It's somewhere. I don't know which one is yours, but it's there. So there are incidences like that that was pretty interesting. Uh, but I really did it just because I had fun doing it. I just saw that there's a need to do some of these things. Th that's all. And did no one ever comment like your teacher saying, oh, you shouldn't be selling paper. Why do you have so many books? Surprisingly, no. Surprisingly, no. I mean, not so much. Maybe they wouldn't say too much about the, the books one because I think that's quite straightforward and there was no monetary transaction. Until today, I'm quite surprised that the teachers allowed me to sell paper because I actually went class to class, knock on the door to say that, look, I'm here to sell paper. And they allowed me, the teacher allowed me to walk into class to sell paper to students from not in my class. And how old were you then? I was only like, what, standard two. So that's what, eight years old? So you were eight years old walking to classrooms of like 12 years old and just... Selling paper. Yeah. That's why this is so fresh. Because until today, it's still a huge question mark in me. Two things, right? Why would somebody buy blank paper from me? And number two, why would they allow this kid to go from class to class to just collect money like that? So I think it will continue to remain as a mystery. 
but that was fun. That's really something I love talking about even until today. Do you remember how much you earned from all that? I don't, but I remember it not being overly significant. But back then when I was a kid, I mean, it sounds very old when I say this, but things were a lot cheaper back then. At, at the canteen, you can buy a meal for like 50 cents, one ringgit. So every paper sold at 10 cents and 20 cents was quite a bit of money. So yeah, I, I managed to get a good sum of pocket money then to buy erasers to play games and do all the kind of things that we, we grew up with. And I think you spent it on comics and model cars as well. Yes, eventually most of those went into, yeah. <laughs> So is it fair to say that you were quite an extrovert when you were young? You were fearless to just go around to a class and just say, hey, I have something. Do you guys want it? Well, according to my parents, I was actually a lot more of an extrovert when I was uh, younger. But as I got older, somehow that changed. I became a lot more conscious uh, of who I am and I became a lot more self-contained. I became a lot more quiet uh, as I grew up as well. So maybe something changed in between. And I wonder if it's because of an incident that happened when you were 10. And it, I understand it was a parent-teacher conference and your parents basically went and spoke to your teacher and you heard the teacher point to you and say, he will never make it. Well, I did consider that point, but I can't say that that is the, the tipping point. That incident definitely affected me because it also affected how my parents uh, have a different outlook on me. I mean, as for every parent, they want their children to do well in the studies, uh, grow up, become somebody, right? And a comment like that can bring quite a bit of uh, negative effect uh, towards them and that trickles down. But do you know why that happened? Like, what was the reason? Was it because you weren't studying in school because you were focused on other things? Not so much of not studying in school. So what happened was that from standard one to standard three, I was doing rather well, I would say. Right, so I was the top of the class. I was always in the better classes. And from standard three, I jumped to standard five. But it was at standard five, that's where this comment happened, right? So I, I wasn't the top of the class anymore. I was among the bottom. And in that comparison, that's where the teachers raised this comment that I am not being, I'm not keeping up my studies. I'm struggling. Therefore, I'm not performing. And I, wouldn't be able to do well in the future because everybody seems to be doing better than me. And do you have an idea of what you wanted to do at the time? No, I mean, at that time, I was just like 10, 11. If you ask me my ambition back then, I would just give you a whole list of policemen, firemen, whatever that was cool on TV at times. So I really no idea. It was just me going through school, doing what I'm supposed to do as a student, uh, as a son to my parents. So you were 17, this is 2005, and you entered University College of Technology and Innovation, and you mm -hmm. did an internet technology degree. What was the thinking behind it? Were you drawn to IT at the time? Yes. So somewhere, I think when I was 15 or 16, uh, you know, in school, that's where you're supposed to choose your stream between science and arts, and you're supposed to write in that book what you want to become. You did all these psychological tests and all that. And at that time, I was pretty keen on two different paths. One of it was business. I mean, just business in general. The other one was technology. And I remember that I almost enrolled myself to a business management course instead of technology. Uh, but after some thought, I decided that business is something that if I'm really interested, I can just read books to learn. But 
I wanted to pick up something that is tangible of a skill that I have to be forced to learn, uh, guided, and therefore I chose the technology path. Back then, I think it was also where the dot-com boom was happening. Many people were going into technology fields and I just thought that it would be interesting to have this skill. So that was the motivation why I got myself into IT school. And what interested me is that somewhere along that point, you had a mindset shift where you told yourself that I want to make a difference and live a life that inspires others. Can you share with us what happened and how that came about? So there is a small backstory before arriving at that point. And the backstory is relatively simple because when I entered into college uh, as a foundation student, the first semester was really just orientating myself, right? This whole new environment, what's going to happen, going to classes and all that. Of course, through the classes, I, I reaffirmed my interest towards programming into IT. Uh, and then I listed myself as uh, one of the technicians of the college. So I basically helped people troubleshoot PCs, their problem in the labs, you know, one of those getting a part-time thingy. But while doing that, I started having this thought of, actually, what am I gaining? out of this. I started looking around and I realized that a lot of my friends are doing the exact same thing. You know, we are in the same clubs, we're attending the same class. Some of them are also these technicians doing the same thing. I realized that whatever that I'm doing is nothing special, although I'm enjoying learning these new skills and all that, but I also felt that there was a little bit more that I can do. I didn't know what, to be honest. I really didn't know. I just knew that I wanted to do more. So I started looking around, asking myself, what can I do? So as a student, the most natural thing was, well, get a part-time job, right? A lot of people are getting part-time jobs. You get paid at that. You get to learn something different. So I thought, yeah, okay, Let, let's see, right? So I went around asking people, what kind of part-time jobs are there? And, and at the usual, right? The weekend exhibition, go and give flyers, go carry some boxes, become a barista, sell some kind of product and then get some commission out of it. And I, I didn't find interest in any of those things. These are things where everybody is still doing. There's still nothing that sets me apart. There's nothing challenging to it. There's nothing different. And I was, somehow I was really hungry for that difference, that change. And then I thought, since I'm a technician in college, maybe I can put some of these skills to use. Again, I didn't know what. And then that led me to start picking up computer formatting and all these different skill sets and services that I could offer eventually as a service. And as I started my first company and I was doing these things, then I realized that actually it's not just about the product and services that I'm creating. What I really enjoy is the process of what I'm doing and how the, the output of this is not just money and revenue, but it's also the opportunity to inspire others. And through that, I find that I, I gain that energy, I gain that drive that in the process, I'm also inspired to do even more because I'm inspiring other people. And that's where the dots suddenly connect. So what do you do after that when you made that connection? Was that when you started going into lecturing? Not so soon, not so soon. Because that connection actually came when I was maybe about, what, 18, 19 years old. So that's about one or two years into the business. You know, when I got a hang out of it, when I, when I started interacting with more people, then I found this drive and that connection actually happened. So in the early days, this connection was just as simple as just a motivation for me to continuously do what I'm doing. So it was nothing more than that. It was just a motivation. But through this motivation and as the company grow and as 
uh, my skill sets also grow as a business owner and also in the technology field, I realized that again, I could do more. So one thing led to another. And then of course, eventually the opportunity came uh, for me to also become a part-time lecturer uh, at the age of 20, 21. Uh, what fascinated me is that your entire story is that of you just recognizing that there was a need and then you just pivoted as was required. So you started that company you mentioned in January 2006. It was Genesis IT Solutions and Services. And it was mm-hmm. very clearly just you know troubleshooting, but then you started to pivot mm-hmm. and you pivoted quite efficiently as well. Was it a difficult thing for you to decide, I want to do something different because this is the need? To be honest, it wasn't. That pivot was relatively simple. Why I say that is because when I first started Genesis, I always imagined it to be a computer shop. That was the end goal. I just wanted to start a shop in Laoyat, sell computer parts. Nothing wrong with that. But my biggest mistake in that dream is that I didn't know how the business worked. I didn't know the model behind starting something like that, a shop, the, the model, the competition. I, I wasn't aware. I, all I did was I just enjoy doing these things, right? And when the opportunity finally came for me to be exposed to how these businesses run and how realistic this situation is, the, the competition is in Laoyat and within the hardware world, that's where it clicks to say that I don't think this is what I want to build anymore. Not just because of the high cost, but how the business is being run and also the extent of again many people can do this the barrier of entry is so low somebody can just come in and open a computer shop as long as you have money so then i started again looking at what else can i do that is different that allows me to stand out so it's, it's it has always been about standing out right as a student to stand out to become the tech assistant or tech assistant to stand out to become doing even more and right now with this to become even more right so that's where i started doing a little bit more research, now a bit savvy, right? So I did a bit more research. I looked around and I realized that, hey, this data recovery business seems to be interesting. It seems to be a niche by itself. Uh, it seems to, be, seems to be like not many people can actually do this well. Maybe it's an industry that I should go in. And that's where the, the pivot actually happened, right? So it was not so much of a need to say that, hey, I think this will work. It's more of, I know what I'm doing now definitely won't work. Let me find something special. And how do you figure out how to do data recovery? Was that something that was being taught? And was there a lot of competition in that area at the time? There was no competition in the area, like zero competition in the area. Everything was self-taught, right? It was Mr. Google, Mr. YouTube being very generous, just learning and trial and error. It's the same process I went through in starting the hardware business in the beginning. So I had no clue. I had to pick up from scratch, learn it myself. It's the same thing I'd applied over here. So in fact, my first few clients was that I, I, I wasn't able to solve the case for them, right? Because I was learning at the get-go, well, at the expense of my client. Uh, I, so I wasn't able to solve their problems. But through that, I learned. And it was also at that time, I got exposed to the world of marketing, how we can use uh, not just the internet, but also offline media to to basically get yourself out there. So I recognize the importance of branding. I recognize the importance of marketing. And that actually helps. So a lot of the marketing skills I have today all attributed to that point where I was forced to pick up all these skills, search engine optimization, social media marketing. I did all these terms are very foreign back then, but forced me to pick up some of these skills. And that actually allowed this pivoted genesis 
uh, to attract attention from bigger players around the world. So we had partners, uh, Seagate in the US, uh, a very large hard disk manufacturer that came and appointed us as the Asia representative. Uh, big companies like Microsoft, Fujitsu, Samsung actually came to us to ask us to become their official data recovery partner. And what was the feeling like when these guys came? It was amazing, right? To be honest, in the beginning, it was questionable because it was just such a small team. It was just me and my partner. There's just two of us. We have no official training on how to do this. All we did was rely on Google, rely on YouTube, rely on experiences, trial and error, rely on search engine optimization, good marketing to attract this attention. And they came. So it was questionable at first, but as we went along and as we continued to improve our skill, that was quite an eye-opening journey, to be honest, because we have never expected something so small could catch international attention and to be able to service quite a number of big brands uh, and reputable brands in Malaysia. And I'm wondering about the people around you as well, because you are just college students, you were still studying. Were the people around you supportive or were they questioning what you were doing, whether you should be partnering such big players? Not at all. It's very sad, but during that time, there was actually little to no uh, support from every layer that you can ever imagine. So friends at that time, because at that time, there's little awareness about startups. Uh, the tech scene isn't as robust as it is now. Uh, and business is something like a huge adult thing to do, you know, when you have experience, when you have money. It's not like today when you speak to a 12 years old, the 12 years old tell you, yeah, I want to become a startup owner. It's, it's never like that. So friends were skeptical. The way they approach this is like, oh yeah, Jen just has a part-time thing, you know. Even in college, lecturers were like, yeah, okay, he's just doing something on the side, nothing serious. My parents weren't particularly supportive as well. They will go about and say that, hey, now you're a student, pay attention to your studies, do well, get a job next time. You know, you have your whole life to work. Why work now? When I go into business challenges and problems, I have nobody to speak to because back then, Friendster was social media, right? And we all know Friendster isn't the, the best or there's no such thing as using social media as business at that point of time. Mentors were very hard to come by. There was no such thing as accelerator programs and coaching mentoring programs. These things were non-existent back then. And to make it even worse, because of that young age, approaching suppliers was difficult. None of the suppliers took me seriously. Uh, they thought I was just an errand boy for my dad coming around asking for stuff. Uh, when I meet clients, clients also don't trust me because I basically look like a kid. Right? So I had to kind of find ways you know, to dress up older wear leather shoes, wear formal shirts, just try to appear older at least a year or two just to win that credibility to have the conversation. So in the early days, it, it was very tough despite me starting so-called early at that point of time. And did you never feel like it was too hard and you wanted to give up? Well, I come back to the point where I was actually really enjoying the process. But these things were real challenges, but I find joy in solving the problems and really building and doing all the execution work uh, back then. And it's, it's a whole season of being very curious in a lot of things, right? How do I do this better? How can I do things faster? And I was very invested into all these processes that these challenges came by to be like, oh, no, it's okay. It's fine. I, I'm, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'll just find somebody else, you know? So, so it was quite easy to navigate at that point of time. 
And then while you were in college, you also started a second company while running the first one, which was in fashion mm-hmm. shirts for real. Yeah. Can you share with us why you thought it would be a great idea to start two companies while you were also pursuing your degree? So I, there, there are many reasons to this. One of the main reasons is because uh, one of there are two of my childhood friends, uh, we came together. It was just over a normal Mamak session. And one of them is a designer and he also has interest in doing something on his own. So we thought, hey, you know, you can design. I have some experience running businesses. The other guy was a marketing guy. We thought we would be a good combination in just trying something out, you know, and uh, the costs weren't that high or we thought it weren't that high. So we thought, let, let, let's just try doing this. So it was really just trying. There was no written business plan, no real strategy. It was just three friends trying to do something on the side, trying to have fun, to just explore what could this potentially be. After all, how much can we lose? So it really just ha- happened like that. So I was running that company. I was running two companies. We registered it. And yes, at the same time, I was still studying. If you were to interview some of my college friends, you'll probably always hear, you know, Jen is often not in class. Jen is sleeping in class. Uh, but somehow Jen still passes, you know. Uh, and that has been the reputation of my entire college life. But yes, I survived college. And after you survived college, do you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Or was it, I've got these companies, I'll just run with it? Yeah, so I think it was a phase that I was just fascinated with starting companies because I, I really enjoyed the adrenaline that comes with it. I enjoyed the process of really trying to find solutions to problems, getting clients, trying to grow things. And I was really invested into the whole process. So at even through my entire college, I was always looking out for business opportunities. What can I dabble myself in? What else can I do? Are there any more exciting ideas? So it's like that. And to be honest, it's like that until today. That still stands true today. One of the things I want to pick up is what you mentioned earlier, which is the whole like, SEO, social media exploration. Because I read on your blog that you said you didn't really use Twitter, but at the same time, through Twitter, you found a business venture that led you to mm-hmm. being a director in Blinked. Yep. Can you share with us what happened there and what it was like? So in the whole exploration of social media marketing and SEO and all that, Twitter was relatively new at a point of time. And uh, it's fast growing. Many countries are adopting it. And because if I'm interested in social media and that's up and coming, naturally, I was also very curious of how can this tool be uh, something that's beneficial for businesses. So I went onto it. I invested quite a bit of time really trying to understand how this thing works. Why is it only 140 characters? What's this follow me, follow me thing? What's retweet? You know, all this technical because it's so different from Facebook, right? I mean, Facebook was the staple platform that everybody was familiar with back then. And then this, this new guy comes at 140 characters, really. I can't even type a status. Back then, you can't upload photos, right? So I was so curious. But it's yet it's still growing. So when through this exploration, I found that there is this thing called tweet chats in Twitter where people will literally host discussions on Twitter on a specific time and day where you will use hashtags to communicate. So you imagine hundreds of people tweeting using the hashtag. There will be a moderator asking questions and soliciting answers and all that. And it was a thing. And it's still a thing on Twitter until today, actually. But back then, I was very fascinated because I get to meet a lot of people from a lot of different countries, all doing very similar things. I was learning a lot from some of these, I call them seniors in the industry. And then came this guy, which I keep bumping into in almost every tweet chat that I was. This name keeps coming up. This face keeps coming up. And we eventually started following each other through the chats and all that. Then we moved into DMing. So we started DMing each other. And we found that 
there's quite a bit of things in common. We share similar hobbies, similar passion. Uh, the vision is similar as well. We started sharing about our personal. So it's all on DM, right? There was no Skype call, no phone calls, no nothing. It was purely on Twitter DMs. And then one day we decided, hey, you know, you are doing this, I'm doing this. I think it's a great combination. Let's do something together. And lo and behold, we actually started a company through Twitter. We sent across borders the documents to sign. We started a company, we pumped capital into it, and it was a real legit company that ran for a year and a half. Until today, I don't know how he sounds like. I don't know how he looks like in person. All I know is his supposed name and his Twitter avatar. Until today, that's how crazy it is. It is crazy because I'm just thinking that you have never met this person, yet you trusted enough to pump capital into it. Do you never have doubts? Do you never think this guy might be pulling a fast one on me? Uh, at that point of time, no. <laughs> that, that, that's honest truth, right? Because it, it's so interesting that, because, okay, one thing that it has to be clear is that this Twitter relationship developed over a long period of time, right? It was not just two conversations over a week and then we started a company. It was over months, you know. Uh, it was also a session where, I mean, of course, if somebody would really want to put up such an elaborate con, they probably could, but it was a very genuine thing, you know. Uh, I got to know his wife. I've seen pictures of his kids. Uh, again, somebody can say, somebody can fabricate that, but this was over months, right? And I felt there was a genuine friendship that was building. Uh, and I think that added to the level of confidence uh, in us coming together. And I also read that for Genesis and your second company, actually, you never actually invested in advertising, but you managed to still make it float. Yeah. Could you share a little bit about that? So it's not just the first two companies, it's all eight companies, uh, Open Minds included. We have never invested in, in advertising. Uh, we have always been believers of organic traffic. It's all about how you are able to optimize your presence, create the awareness, create the credibility. And we use credibility as the main currency for so-called selling, right? The more you put yourself out there, the more people recognize without relying on ads. Of course, in the earlier days, uh, there were other reasons as well. One of the main reasons was that because all these companies are bootstrapped, very little capital or capital comes from myself or within the few poor students. Therefore, advertising wasn't something that we could just blow away. Right. So we had to be very independent. We need to be very resourceful. We need to scrape and find whatever ways that we can get free publicity or to get ourselves out there. And through that, I think that has helped me gain a different mindset towards how we approach advertising or marketing for a company. And, and it's possible. And because I've done it and because it's possible, therefore, I always try to replicate it until today. Are there particular tricks that you have found over time to be really helpful or successful? Actually, the only trick is that you need to spend a lot of time uh, in building your own presence, in investing into your website. Again, search engine optimization, it's extremely helpful until today. When you go on social media, it's all about the content you post, how you actually balance between selling and creating meaningful conversations, getting to know people. There's a lot of time invested in building these relationships uh, using social media and that helps. The thing is that Many people approach marketing in the aspect of really just posting up something and expect somebody to just engage automatically uh, without building their relationship. You know, ads, yes, ads are great. Don't get me wrong. Now, if you have the capabilities to buy ads, that's awesome. Go ahead and do it because it fast tracks a lot of things. But as we know, as consumers, 
we don't really play very well with ads as well. Uh, we rather a more meaningful relationship to build. And to be honest, it also depends on the industry and the type of company you're building. If you are going for mass consumers, a mass product, then of course, ads will be the fastest way to build. You can't build one-on-one -on -one relationship just to sell a product that costs you $9. That's going to be insane, right? So you want the mass. But for a service type business like us that is more relationship driven, it's more about credibility, it's more about how you are positioning yourself out there, then time becomes a very great investment in marketing. Yeah. So all you're talking about right now is all the things that you're doing with Open Minds Resources, which you started in 2009. Mm -hmm. But then there was a major pivot in 2012. Again, clearly you saw there was a gap and then you went there because you knew that this is something you could provide. Could you share with us those early days? Because I understand that you started as a tech-based startup. It was a job application management company. Yep. How did the whole idea come about? So the job application company was very simple. Back then in 2009, it was the year that most of us graduated from uni. And of course, obviously, everybody's applying for jobs. And there's always a common complaint. The big job portals aren't doing enough. They're very traditional. The user interface is lousy. You know, it's so cumbersome. Why do we still need CVs? Isn't there a better way of doing this? Same problems like some of them we are still hearing today, right? So I thought, hey, we are a bunch of tech graduates. Let's build a product and solve this problem once and for all. Let's go to war with the big boys, you know. Let's just do something big. So, and, and that's what we did. We put in, I think, almost a year of our time uh, in building this platform, the four of us building this. And when we had an MVP, we started, of course, looking for clients, trying to get companies to come on board. Because it's a job-matching platform. So you, you need the students, you need the unemployed, and you need the employers, right? So we started talking to employers. So we did up pitch decks, the usual, have the price range. And we started speaking to some corporates, right? Some banks, some bigger corporates, because we wanted the volume and the name, of course. We spoke to some of them. Well, to cut the long story short, they didn't sign on. None of them signed on, in fact. There were a lot of interest, but none of them signed on. Uh, for very typical corporate business reasons, uh, reputation, too new, risk too high, blah, blah, blah. But there's one constant comment that came back over and over again is that you guys, I like your marketing ideas, how you're planning to market this platform because there's always the go-to-market strategy in the pitch deck, right? I like this. Would you be able to do this for us? This was very consistent across many corporates that we've spoken to. But of course, at that time, we were very focused in our product tools. It's like, no, we're going to market this for ourselves. We're not going to do that for you. So we, we turned down all of it. You turned down all of it. So you didn't want their job, even though they were offering something different. We didn't want because we, we are not built to be a marketing company. We were built to become a job portal. I mean, we were very focused on that. But that went on for a long time. And it reached a point of time where my other team members were already under stress to get a job for financial reasons, family pressure, and basically moving on in life. They can't just fingers crossed two years without you know unemployed investing into this and then, and then nothing happens, right? So some of them started to have a so-called part-time job. Some of them started going to full-time jobs. It became more difficult to meet again. I was the only one without a job but they went on to different things that they're doing. And I, I couldn't lock them down because people need to survive. So I let them go. So, okay, backtrack a little bit. While doing this, at that time, I was still really going deep into brushing up my digital marketing skills. So 
at that point of time, I also took uh, a certified e-commerce consultant course. So with that particular certification, that allowed me to start giving very basic consultancy services to very small SMEs and all that. So I was also doing this on the side as well of the, the, the other companies that are also running concurrently. So I thought I'll just focus on, on that for now since this whole job thing doesn't seem to work. And that was the time where social media started to become interesting. Uh, Facebook came into the picture. Companies were talking about how they can use Facebook as a marketing tool. And e-commerce wasn't just e-commerce anymore. E-commerce was how you can promote it on social media. How can you gain fans? How can you gain likes? There was a huge conversation on that. So through that, I realized that there seemed to be a demand for social media marketing. There seems to be a demand for digital marketing. And that's where I decided that that's a path that I want to try. So it wasn't even a real pivot I wanted to try. And then came this particular friend that gave me a call that said, hey, Jen, you do this training thing, right? I don't know what you do, but I, I, you do this marketing training thing, right? I was speaking to this company the other day and I think they want something like that. Like, I give you the contact, then you see like, what happens. So that's exactly what it is. So, okay, let's see what happens. I went in, we did the pitch uh, and it was successful. They were very interested and they want to come aboard. Like, okay, that's something. And that's where I seriously consider this needs to be a business. At that point in time, you purely had a certificate, but you never actually applied to it for in real life. Uh, no. So I already was conducting consultancy sessions on a one-to-one basis to smaller SMEs, business owners and all of that. But that was more on the e-commerce route. That was more on the search engine optimization. But when this came about as a company, it was quite a sizable company you know, at that point of time. Uh, it's an it's a SMI industry. So I was, that time I was intrigued. I never knew that, that this had a potential to grow or to have that kind of an interest that people would actually want to talk about it or to dive into it. And that became the turning point. And then that's where I re-registered the company, officially put aside the whole job uh, portal and to build open minds. Uh, that is year 2012. And you also entered into this with a new team as well. Yes. And I understand that in those earlier years, you said before in your first year, you decided not to draw a salary. Second year, you had a small 300 ringgits difference mm-hmm. and the third year was a fresh grad salary. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that decision? Because that is quite a sacrifice to make. Mm. I mean, to be honest, you kind of have no choice, right? Because uh, at the early stage, it was very clear that we needed money to roll the company. I think when me and my partners came to be, it was very clear that we know that we need to hire. And the only way to hire is to sacrifice our own cut, our own pay. And and that's exactly what we did. So until today, I'm very grateful for my partners to take this very big step of uh, sacrifice in the early days to not draw salary. And that really led on to us being to employ our first team member at the expense of all of us, of course. Of course, he doesn't know that we're not getting paid. Uh, So he was the highest paid person within the company, you know, and we were all not getting paid at all. Uh, But that allowed us our first step to grow the company, to do more than what we can do. And since then, it was just a journey of never looking back. So you weren't drawing a salary. So how did you survive if you will like you weren't from a particular rich family as i understand it no so how did you manage it so on expenses point of view back then my expenses were extremely low as well i mean 
looking back that time, we were still students coming out. So uh, you don't have too much commitment. So that really helped. But at the same time, because Open Minds wasn't my first company, so I did have some savings for uh, previous companies as well. And then, of course, my site, the, the whole consultancy thing that I was doing for e-commerce. So that gave some income every now and then. And plus, since expenses wasn't very high, so that really worked out. For some of my partners as well, that's the same, but they've also been working before this. So they also had some savings and all of us were agreeable to come and put together this uh, sacrifice. So this sacrifice wasn't made just because it was sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that we came to say that, look, we need to close our first client before we can officiate this company. Right? Even for all of us, we needed to prove to ourselves that this company can make money before we even decide to make the sacrifice. And we managed to prove that. Hence the sacrifice. Because now we know that the company is profitable from day one. It's not something that we're coming together to say, I don't know what will happen in the next six months that there could be zero income. No, we went in knowing that we have closed our first client and that made a whole world of difference. So what were your priorities in those first few days in terms of building this company from the ground up? The early days, the priority was really, really simple. It's just two things. One is to be able to generate cash flow, good cash flow that is able to sustain the company. And number two, to be able to pay us as founders as soon as possible. Because realistically speaking, of course, we all need money to survive. We cannot work for free forever and ever. So this tool was pretty much the, the, the biggest focus of priority at a point of time. There was no such thing as scaling the company, trying to go international, big clients. No, it was just basically survival and being able to pay ourselves. And I wonder, how did you differentiate yourself from your competitors? Were there a lot of people doing the same thing? What was the ecosystem like then? So at the point of time, technology and marketing were two separate worlds. So if you're in a tech company back then, a tech company, it's pretty much just coders. You build websites, you build system. It's the system integrator company. It's extremely technical. It's basically really the tech geek stereotype that you have in mind. That would be the tech industry back then. And then the marketing industry would be your advertising, the hipsters. the And, and these two industries does not actually talk to any each other. In fact, rarely you find a company where these two competencies sit together, right? And that was our unfair advantage. We came together as a team of people that can understand both marketing and technology. So that gave us a very unique proposition where a lot of companies can't give. So when we went in and pitched, we tell them the marketing strategy and we tell them how tech can help them in marketing and how we can help them achieve these things. And you don't need to go look anywhere because we can do this all 100% in-house. So in terms of competency, we were already offering something very unique. Of course, today, when you look at it, everywhere you see a digital company that has a tech guy sitting on it, it's a lot more common these days. But back then, we were really one of the handful uh, in Malaysia, if not the only one that was able to create such a concept. And, and that was a, a good start for us. I mean, it's clear that you had a very clear vision. You had people who just bought into that vision as well. At the stage that you're at now, looking back, are there anything in particular that you wish you had done differently? Quite a number of things, I would say. But I think one of the main things that stands out is that we should have put in a little bit more clarity in conveying our vision to the employees of the early stage. I think in the early stage, there's some pros and cons. So in the early stage, we were very invested into the process of execution. We were all 
highly skilled people. We all have our individual skills. I was still coding in those days, you know, so I was building websites, I was writing codes uh, and we were very, very hands-on. And while that helped us get to where we are today, at the same time, we also lack the ability to translate some of this vision of where we are going to get that to the earlier team members. So that means that there was a period of time, there was some confusion, there was some disconnect uh, even among the partners of where we are going to because it was always the routine of just getting a job, do the job, getting a job. So in hindsight, there should be some efforts put into making sure that it's the right thing to do as well and to even establish clearer measures between job roles or even how communication should be done because all these things starts when you are small, not when you are at the larger size. And clearly you have made a big difference because your company was voted as having one of the best workplace cultures. And every time I read about Open Minds, they always talk about the fact that you put people first. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how did you come to create that culture? This culture was actually very intentional. Even when uh, Open Minds started off with five partners, but in the much earlier days, it was just the three of us uh, as partners. And even at that point of time, there was a session where all three of us sat down to talk about what kind of company we would want to build. And there was few things that we were very sure we don't want to build, which is a company where people dread coming in, a company that has a lot of red tapes in communication, and a company that basically just see employees as workers. We really dislike these three things. And we thought to ourselves, if that's the things that we don't like, we should not follow what a conventional company is built on. So this went on from revamping the working hours, revamping how an office should be like, revamping how we would want to term certain things um, when we eventually have a team. We never had a team. The first team member came in months later into the game, but we are already saying that this is a company that we want to build. And ever since we sat down and placed those so-called ground rules or culture foundation, uh, we started practicing it even among the three of us. And ever since then, that has always been uh, the focus. We were always trying to find ways to do better, uh, tighten things up, add more to it. How can we be even more people-centric, although we are already trying to do our best, always trying to push our boundaries uh, because it all comes down to these three things that we really, really didn't want to do. And clearly you're no stranger to transformation. You transform the work culture, but you also transform this company from making nothing to... For instance, in 2015, your revenue tripled mm -hmm. as compared to 2014. And you even expanded at one point to Kazakhstan, in Singapore, and also Hong Kong as well. So at what point would you consider there to have been a turning point where you thought, I can make it, it's going to work? Well, I wouldn't call it a, a turning point. In fact, I would actually just see it as an opportunity. So as we were scaling, I was very conscious that this is an industry because we were enjoying the benefits, being one of the pioneers, we were growing, like you said, the revenue actually tripled, things were going well. And it was at that point of time, I realized that, hey, if this is really going well, this means that we won't be unique very, very soon. People will be catching up. The industry is seeing more and more experts coming up. Technology is changing. There are a lot more other opportunities out there for other people to explore as well. We are no longer as unique as we think we are. So the only way to break free is to either change, offer unique services, or scale. At that point of time, because we're also doing rather well financially, we thought that, hey, let, let's scale, right? Let, let's 
go into other markets, untapped markets, so that we can present ourselves to recreate this pioneer situation, right? Because we, we went through the whole pioneering phase and we ripped the benefits. So we thought, let's replicate this pioneering phase. And that's why we went to Kazakhstan. So we knew somebody from Kazakhstan. We had a few conversations. He's also very passionate in starting something similar in Kazakhstan. So we thought, why not? Kazakhstan is a very new country. This is very new to them. Very similar climate of how we first started. So we thought, okay, let's, let's go in. Cost wasn't very high in Kazakhstan. So we thought, let, let's give it a try. So it was just a matter of building more grounds uh, for us. Of course, unfortunately, the story also goes that two years in, we had to shut down the Kazakhstan office because of the oil and gas crisis that happened in that point of time. And most of our clients were oil and gas over there. So we had to shut it down. It was a good run. And then we explored into more matured markets like Hong Kong and Singapore. And how do you maintain that kind of cultures when you were already multi-jurisdictional? So we started the Hong Kong office by sending one of our Malaysian team members to Hong Kong. So ever since then, she is based in Hong Kong for the past two years. Uh, was it three already? <laughs> in, in Hong Kong. And she was the one that single-handedly grew the Hong Kong team. After what she has experienced in Malaysia, how she has grown with us, how she has also built the relevant skill sets. Uh, so she's just successfully transferred all of this within Hong Kong and built a team of her own. In terms of vision and direction, I think that's still very much aligned because as a group, we all see a common future they want to achieve together. But when it comes to work culture, there is some sort of a difference because the pace between these countries are extremely different. Even within Kazakhstan, the way we do business was very, very different. So what we realized is that, hey, the work culture could be different. However, the company's values remain the same. And that is what we have kept across all the countries that we're in. But how the company is run operationally, that could be different and to take on whatever is effective for that country. And I want to talk about one thing that you mentioned before, which happened in 2017, and you said you let your guard down and that led to a lot of impact on relationships. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could share that and what happened. Well, it's a very long, detailed, dark and personal story. At that time, I have to say that I allowed quite a bit of ego to get to me. It was a time where we were doing pretty well as a company, it was a time that uh, on the personal career side, on the personal life side, things were going very smooth. Uh, it was one of the highest point uh, in life. And I think it was also that time where I kind of lost myself. I was in a state thinking I was able to solve, even if I can run this company, right, with so many challenges. Technically, there is nothing I cannot solve. You know, kind of that kind of a mindset. And that was a huge trap that led to a series of decisions that uh, I shouldn't have made. Even until today, in hindsight, when I look back, I wasn't proud of some of these decisions I've made because it has cost me very, very dearly. A, a lot has been lost. I lost friends. I lost close relationships. I lost many things, money involved as well, quite a bit. And that brought me from my highest point to my lowest point in life almost just within months, right? And the worst part of it is that while going through this, I was still very adamant that I was able to solve this problem. I thought I was still very capable of doing it. And it's just spiral and spiral and spiral and spiral until it hit a point where none of it can 
Dalvich. I realized that I had no power. I had no ability to save myself from this situation. And there's nothing I could do but to just let go and move on. And that was the start of a series of very, very dark and lonely months uh, ahead at that period of time. And how did you dig yourself out of that while managing your own business? It was extremely, extremely, extremely challenging. I mean, I can only attribute it to the grace of God, to be honest, because I, it was really, really tough. I mean, I still can recall, right? Some days I just didn't want, I just couldn't find strength to get off my bed because the stress, the pressure was so real and there was really nobody, like literally nobody I could talk to uh, that would sympathize or empathize or would just listen to me without judging me at that point of time. It was a moment where it feels like you're just locked into a box and you have nowhere to turn to and you're just waiting for the days to pass. You know, it, it was to extend where I always describe it as, you know, people say take one day at a time. At that point of time, to me, it was one minute at a time. I really could not function as a human being. I could not focus on work. I couldn't focus on doing whatever that I'm doing. You know, all the things that I used to say, how that, you know, when you're low, you need to motivate yourself as an entrepreneur to this mindset. I channel all of that, but I couldn't do anything of that. Is to the point where I actually had to openly tell my my partners to say, look, I I need to take a break. I need to be totally cut off from the business for some time to really find myself again. So I was out for about two to three months, almost three months, uh, completely detached from the business. Of course, I still receive emails and all that. I, I do read them just to stay abreast, but I wasn't actively involved in the activities of the company but it was still tough i was literally wasting time mindlessly browsing netflix mindlessly browsing youtube i was just really waiting for time to pass uh, i i did some minor traveling here and there you know because they say that if you travel get your mind off thing but it didn't it was a huge dark period of time but as time goes by you know the that, that feeling slowly lifted bit by bit and when i one day realized that it has reached a point where I can work again. That's where I re-enrolled myself and start doing what I'm supposed to do. But that doesn't mean that I was over the whole thing. I still struggled for quite a bit. In fact, this whole saga was a total of two years, right? It was only 2019 where I actually started to feel like myself again. It was two years of really hell. And despite work and all that going on, it was a constant struggle behind the scenes where not many people would have known actually and you mentioned god so faith is something that's very important to you since young and you're part of the youth team the ministry, mm -hmm. the music team as well can you share a bit about how faith has played a role in your life faith has always been a big part of my life i mean i, I was born into a christian family but the real encounter where i realized that hey this faith thing it has become very real to me was about the age of 12 and 13 years old. And that's where I really wanted to serve and give and to be able to contribute in whatever ways I can at that age, right? So at that time at church, one of the easiest ways was through music. And uh, a lot of my friends were already musicians because they were learning, practicing from young and all that. So I thought, yeah, maybe I could pick up an instrument, you know, and start serving. So that was really the, the start 
of it. And of course, through music, then I started getting involved in different parts of the church that also built different leadership qualities and, and all of that. And that whole part of my church journey played a very important role in helping me hang on, to be honest. Although I have to also say that in the two years, I couldn't find myself to go to church. It was also a period of time where, because I grew up in church, right? So all my friends were church friends. And when all these things happened, uh, it wasn't also the best place to be. I just didn't want to be around people. But somehow at a personal level, uh, the faith was still there. And that kept me going uh, day by day, minute by minute. And as I understand, another thing that keeps you going is the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, you love to serve, you love to give back. And we can see that in just the number of free webinars you're giving in COVID-19, you've done like 10 in the past month. And you have been a TEDx speaker, keynote speaker. You are an advisor on BFM radio. Like You are constantly speaking on stage in front of a crowd, even though, as I understand, you were an introvert and you actually hated public mm-hmm. speaking when you were young. So how did that pivot come about and all these opportunities? I still hate public speaking speaking to be honest every time before I go up stage I always still have this jittery feeling my heart beats I don't know how many BPS per second you know it goes crazy uh, it's not something that comes natural to me uh, until today so interestingly uh, I keep track of this shit to put down all the number of events I've spoken in and crowd size right so up to now I've actually spoken to I don't know more than 30,000 40,000 people uh, across hundreds of stages across the world but I still have this feeling. So I can assure you that I've never gotten about it. But you're right. From a young age, even in high school, when we had to do oral exams for English and BM, I hated every part of it. I tried to push it. I tried to tell the teacher that I have a stomach ache. I can't do it today. I forgot my materials. I tried to push it as much as I can. I really, really didn't like it. In college, it was worse because presentation is mandatory. I always beg my team leader to say, just let me do introduction. I'll go up there and introduce everybody, tell the topics and you guys can take over it and I'll come out and say thank you. I'll do the start and the end. That was my role over and over again. So it was a period of time when I started my company and then I, I took the whole certified e-commerce program. That is when I realized that I cannot escape this if this is what I want to do. If I wanted to be different, if I am serious of this path or so-called this career or this skill that I'm trying to build, this is something that I would just need to do despite me not liking it or despite me being not good at it. So whatever that you are seeing now in a conversation or all the webinars or even the TEDx videos and all, all these speaking engagements, no matter how big the stage is, it's actually just a result of me forcing myself and tremendous amount of practice. In the early days, it was hell. I had to practice I, many, many times. You know, I wrote a script. I tried to memorize it. I practiced in front of mirror. I run through it over and over again just for that 15 minutes just to introduce myself and my company in a networking event. I needed to go through that. And then when somebody gave me the opportunity to share about e-commerce on stage, it was just, I think, just 20 minutes. But, well, that was like, I think it felt like two hours for me. You know, I, I wrote, I prepared, I, I did all that I can. And I still do that until today. Of course, I don't take two hours preparing right now. I mean, it's, it's much shorter because I kind of, I know my way out of it. There are certain techniques that I've developed, but it's true hard work, like hard, H-A-R-D and H-E-A-R-T, hard work, combination of these two things because I really need to force myself uh, to these webinars as well. 
to be honest, I could actually just say, no, I don't want to do any of these things. You know, I'm comfortable not doing any of this. But again, it's what I want to do. It's how I also put myself in a position that I'll need to do it. And therefore, I did it. And in 2017, you were one of the Forbes 30 under 30. That's clearly a recognition of all the things that you've been doing. Congratulations. How was that feeling? And did you have an impact on the kind of work that you're doing? There is a significant amount of impact to the work I'm, I'm doing, that's for sure, because uh, the recognition from Forbes is a reputable recognition. You can't pay for it. You can't bid for it. It's something where they recognize your efforts within the region. And being able to be listed as one of the 30 under 30 in the Asia list, it was really a pat on the shoulder. Uh, but if you talk about how did I feel about it, to be honest, I didn't really feel anything because this was 2017. 2017 was the darkest year, right? It was a period of time I was going through so much. And despite the announcement, I really didn't know how to feel about it. That's why this whole Forbes thing, it's something where I've never celebrated. I mean, I looked around at all the other listers, all of them that also made the list. They're true parties with our companies, they're true parties with our loved ones, they celebrated, they went out, they ate, they you know, had all these things. I celebrated in silence, I guess. Right? It was a time I was just processing all this. In fact, we talk about fate, right? It was also a time I was really also asking God, like, like why? I've already messed up. I, I did all these things, no wrong decisions. I let ego get to my head, all these things that's coming in. And then there's this recognition right now to say that, hey, you have done well. So I'm like, there's a lot of contradiction within me. There was a lot of, of play within my head. What's going on? What, what does this really mean? Uh, so it has never really sunk in. But like I said, the impact of this was great because people recognize the Forbes brand uh, and it definitely also helped me in my career in growing open minds in meeting clients in speaking events and all these webinars also has some sort of attribution to the recognition that Forbes had given me back in 2017. And I wonder how it is that you were in that period of time but in 2018 you decided to go even further and you started incubating startups as well which I imagine took a lot of you I mean you incubated a virtual reality tech startup data analytics, co-working space, passport. Mm -hmm. There are all these different things. How do you even decide that you had the capacity to take this on while battling all these mental and also business-related issues? I saw that as an outlet. I knew I couldn't sit still. I, I cannot continuously wallow in, in the sadness or in whatever that I was going through. I knew that it wasn't healthy. I knew that I needed to come out. There was a company waiting for me. I could not be on a break indefinitely and forever. I needed to still pull my weight. I needed to still do something. And at the very least, uh, those were the things that I thought I could do and could also keep my mind off things. And, and it did. To be honest, these things did because it was a fresh new take. So those were like a gentle introduction for me to even come back into the formal running of the company. So all these different incubation because there were different products, there were different teams, there was different brainstorming process. So that kept things fresh and exciting uh, to slowly ease me back uh, into the game again. So all these things actually uh, were stepping stones that helped me uh, recover. And I have a question from one of our friends, Jamie. She wants me to ask you, you have always been giving to other people, but what have you done for yourself? Wow. Hmm, that's a very good one and a tough one. Well, to be honest, I haven't done much for myself. In fact, 
right before this call, I was in another meeting. I was actually asked a, a similar question as well. And my answer was also the same. I, that, that's something that I can't say I regret because I knew whatever that I went through was a stepping stone uh, to where I am today. But I also recognize that that actually has been my biggest weakness, uh, that it's always putting not just other people, but other things first. It could be a company, it could be a new venture, it could be an idea, it could be my parents, it could be my sisters, it could be my friends, it could be my partners, whatever it is. Uh, but I have very little time on my own for me to do what I truly enjoy. And it's something where, to be honest, I actually wanted some time off this year like to go on a holiday, bad timing, <laughs> since we were stuck right smack at the center of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that has definitely different plans. But this was the year I thought I could finally take a break and spend some time for myself away from the company, away from the business, finally away from the baggage I was carrying to really just go and have fun once again. And looks like it's not the time yet. So I'm still waiting for the opportunity for me to create something or do something for myself. And how has COVID-19 actually impacted your life then? I mean, when we first met, you were traveling all the time. You were barely in Malaysia. Yes. And now it seems like you haven't paused. So what has been the impact? And surely you must be doing something for yourself since you're finally at home more. That was actually the initial thought, you know. So I started this year traveling quite a bit as well. There was Bangkok, there was Singapore. I was going back and forth. In fact, in the I've never been in Malaysia so long. Uh, not flying out, you know, continuously. I've never been in Malaysia. So it's been a while I've, I've been here like that. So when I came back from Singapore, that was just days before Malaysia has its own uh, stay-at-home order, the MCO. I thought to myself, this would be a good chance for me to spend some time for myself, catch up on the Netflix subscription that I've been blindly paying and not watching and really just catching up all the books. I have tons of books stacked up and not touching them. I thought I would be able to clear all of this, but it has been extremely busy. I have never been able to do any of those things. It has become a lot more demanding for many reasons. Number one, uh, yes, definitely impacted our plans as a company in Open Minds. This was the year that we were planning to resume some of our scaling plans. China was on our map. Uh, and of course, China was the first country that was hit. So in the beginning, we were thinking, okay, that's fine. It's just China. You know, we had, uh, we have other opportunities. We had another opportunity in Europe. And then guess what? Europe was second because with Italy, Germany, and they were all just on domino effects. And then Malaysia came. So we were hit left, right, center, and all this had to put to a stop. And that means that we had to re-synergize, re-strategize, re-plan everything that we had for the year in every aspect, from talent perspective, skill perspective, spending perspective, survivability. And that took a lot of time in readjusting to make sure that we could stay afloat. So there were a lot of meetings, a lot of calls, and then came also the need to still close deals, to still look for clients, to still keep leads warm, to keep the relationship there because we can't just go through this and just stop everything and just stay home. So work still needs to be done. And that has been keeping me extremely busy. And one way for us to also stay afloat and to keep ourselves relevant out there to show that we are still there from a branding perspective, from an awareness perspective, it's through webinars. Like everybody's showing webinars. Everybody's trying to get themselves out there. And we thought that, hey, this is something we do as well, live stages. 
we just need to translate some of these things, do it through video right now. And, and that has also been taking a lot of my time. Like you've rightly said, uh, I have done 10 already in the month of May. I have one more tomorrow, one more next Wednesday. And yeah, and there's still some, some conversations going on for the, for the weeks ahead. So I still don't have the time for myself, although I would really love to say that, oh yes, I've ticked off all those things on my list. Uh, but I am also glad that through this period of time, uh, it gave me some time to also reprioritize some parts of, of my life. So for example, I finally managed to work on the book project that I am supposed to complete four years ago. So it's four years after I finally got a chance to really, I think one of the hidden blessings of MCO is that I know that I'm definitely going to be stuck at home. I won't have a sudden meeting that I need to travel to KL or somewhere at 9 a.m. or 8.30 in the morning, leaving house one hour before to beat the jet. So in some sense, the schedule is fixed. If it's a call at 9, it's a call at 9. I can slowly walk to my computer at 8.50 and still make it in time. And that allowed me to deliberately set up very clear blocks of time to reprioritize some of these things. So book writing has been rather successful so far. Uh, I've been able to schedule in a bit more frequent workouts. So that's some of the hidden benefits, I would say. Do you foresee any lasting impact from COVID-19 that will impact the way that you do business, let's say five to 10 years from now? I think uh, it will definitely impact in the sense where the approach of us in scaling the company or even running certain parts of business will be will definitely take take a turn that there will be a change in how we manage the company even as a whole and how we look at hiring how we look how uh, in terms of investing into different tools that we use to manage the company or projects in terms of how we structure contracts with our clients there will definitely be changes like that. But I think one of the biggest thing that we probably need to adapt and change is to also look into diversifying some parts of our business. I know we already diversified in some sense, but in the past, we always took this diversification for granted. Like it's possible, so we do it, but we didn't really put that much of an effort and emphasis in making sure that they achieve its fullest potential. But through this uh, experience, we are reminded of the importance of also putting equal amount of effort. And that is something that will stick with us uh, for the many years to come. And I wonder if there is anyone here who's thinking of starting a new venture, would you advise them to start it now? And if so, what would be your biggest piece of advice for them? I've always said this and I'll say this again, there is never a right or wrong time uh, to start a business because there are businesses that thrive during a downturn there are also businesses that closes during an upturn. Uh, business is something that's very unpredictable. Uh, and it's really up to you to seize that opportunity, to make that sacrifice, to put in the effort to, to basically turn this into something that is profitable uh, for you. So if there's any advice to be, it's really just to be very prudent on your cash flow, especially if you're going to start at this point of time. You want to look for a business that, doesn't necessarily just ride on a trend or you think it can do well, but to safeguard your cash flow, to put that extra emphasis in your numbers becomes very, very important. Because I think this whole season, if anything, has taught businesses big and small like that 
cash flow is king. You look at big companies, big, huge tech companies around the world, they have hundreds of millions of dollars in investments and they are letting go employees by the thousands. And they themselves are putting out announcements saying that, hey, I may not be around anymore in the next three months or the next six months. That shows, right, that no matter how much money you had in terms of investment and all that, if you don't maintain a profitable company, which is the basis of any business anyway, if you're running a business and you're not going to make money, I don't know why are you going to business. So it's, it's a good time to get back to basics. Start whatever business you have. If an idea, great. Start small baby steps, but more importantly, make sure you know how to get the money in. If you are unsure, then maybe this is not a good time to start. So you need to know how are you going to earn that revenue before you go jumping into it. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for your time. It's been incredible to hear your story and the fact that you just were so able to listen and hear the kind of needs that were there and just pivoting and just answering with your very unique set of skills. So normally before I close, I always end with these questions. So the first one is, have you found your why? Yes, my why is actually very simple. Why am I doing all this is really just to inspire others and to be inspired myself. That is still one of the main things that keeps me moving. That's one of the main things that keeps me motivated on days where I really don't feel like it, on days where I feel that I didn't do a good job. When I come across something that I realize that, hey, I've made an impact to somebody. I've managed to inspire somebody in the smallest ways. That keeps me going. And that is one of the biggest push factor of why am I doing all of these things? Why am I so adamant that Open Minds has to be run in a certain way? Why we have to be huge believers of positive education? Why are we doing all these subsidiaries and investment to startups? It's really to enlarge our base, to inspire many more people and to open more minds. That's exactly where the name comes from. Just to tag on that, who inspires you then? Oh, this is actually tough because I don't have a f- that one person uh, that, that kind of inspires me. So I look into multiple different people for different parts of life or different parts of a situation. I have I look up to different people for different things. So if you look at, let's say, on the spiritual side of things, I have a pastor that I look up to. When you look at how from somebody came from nothing even when nobody believed him and turned into something, I actually uh, admire how Tony Fernandez did it when he bought over uh, Asia from nothing. When I looked into how to run a company, you know, despite being at the top and so many people clearly don't understand what you're doing. I have uh, a mentor that is a managing partner in one of the big fours in Malaysia that I, that I look up to as well. So even in marketing, in different aspects of marketing, I also have different sources of inspiration. So I don't have this one particular main figure, but I have many people, depending on how I relate to them, uh, that, that, that's where I draw my inspiration from. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I think for me, one legacy I want to leave behind is that I want people to be able to see me and recognize me that I have made tangible, positive impact through the things that I do. It comes back very close to what I said just now about to inspire and to be inspired. And this has always been the underlying motivation of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Some people ask me, you know, Agent, you know, you're running all these things. You really don't have time for yourself, but you're still teaching, right? You are, and you're giving all this free mentorship to startups, these students where you know that you fail and their idea is probably lousy and you know it, right? But still you are spending this 
one, two hours with them, going on coffee. What, why are you doing this? To me, it's, it's really very simple because I, I really just want to leave a positive impact. Uh, and if somebody can look back one day and say that, hey, there was this point where I spoke to Jen and he changed my life or he gave me this insight or he helped me come out from where I am and he inspired me to do this and do that. That is something that they really strive for. If I can leave that legacy, then I could say that this is actually a, a life well lived. And thirdly, what do you think are the most important qualities a person needs to thrive as you have in your field? I think one of the biggest qualities that one should have and must have is to have the ability to shut off what people are saying about you. Although there are a lot of other things you can think of like perseverance, sacrifice, positive thinking, mindset, there's a whole long list of things. But I think above all, you need to have the ability to be able to shut off what people are saying about you because people will talk regardless you're successful or not successful. Whether your decision is right or it's wrong, people will still talk. So you need to have your own firm belief. It could be driven by faith. It could be driven by your gut, your own motivation, whatever it is. But trust yourself, trust that voice that you have. Don't get easily influenced or swayed by the people around you because at the end, it's your life and you need to make that decision on your own in what kind of a life you want to live. And there is a special wildcard question again from Jamie, our mutual friend. And she says that there is so much information about you online. And I saw it, there are articles written about it, interviews, webinars, Tell us something that we can't find online about you. Wow. I don't even know the extent of what's <laughs> online. And now I think, what? You know, ah, okay. This could be interesting. One thing that many people may not know that is at one point of time, I was a Grab driver. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I had reasons to it. It was not for additional pocket money and whatnot. But I was very curious in how the ecosystem worked. And I wanted to know how was it like to be fetching strangers and all that. So I did that for a bit. This was before things became complicated with the license and all of that, right? Back then, it was just a registration. So I went through the whole lot of training and whatnot, and I actually picked up a few people just to see how is it like it was fun. And then after that, I decided, okay, la, th- th- this is not for me. But yeah, I don't think you can find that online because I rarely talked about this. But yes, I was a Grab driver. It was just, I think, maybe one year, two years ago, maybe. That's fascinating. And where can people go to find more about you and just connect with you? All the social media platforms, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's Instagram, you can just search Jen Wong, or if not, you can head straight to my website as well. Uh, That's www.jenwong.my. Thank you so much, Jen, for the time spent here. I really enjoyed it. No problem at all. Thank you. Thank you for all the great questions. Uh, That really got me thinking very much. And that was the end of episode seven. The show notes can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash seven, which includes the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. And if you loved what Jen shared and want to gain some of his hard-won digital marketing insights, Jen actually has this new book he just released, and it's called Building Your Digital Net Worth. It's a great book, and the link to purchase that can be found in the show notes as well. And if you're wondering what's coming up in the next episode, well, we're going all the way to Germany to meet a freelance journalist who has worked with Reuters, The Guardian, The Telegraph, Vice, and USA Today, as well as written guidebooks for The Lonely Planet and Michelin Green Guides. Hung out with Venezuelan gang members, transgender sex workers, 
politicians and Berlin DJs and imparts great advice for those seeking to live the life of a freelance writer. This episode will drop next Sunday. So stay tuned and thank you for listening.